Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. So this morning we're closing off this Ordinary Heroes series that we've been in for the last few months. We've been talking about some men and women from the Bible who were painfully ordinary, just like us, but were used by God to do great things anyway. And we've been looking at this idea that there are things in the world God planned at a time, that he stamped our names on, stamped your name on, that he wants you to do. There is a future God wants to create for the world through your life, even though you're ordinary. And he will do it if you're willing to live with extraordinary faith. And today we're going to take a look at the story of a hero who's a little bit different than all of the other ones we've talked about, but I think his story actually holds the key to overcoming the most significant obstacle most of us face in living out the big idea of this series and believing God really does want to make a difference through us. Because the thing is, the idea of, of God inviting us in to be a part of what he's doing to rewrite eternity for all the people around us is incredibly inspiring, but there's a problem with it. And the problem is most of us struggle to step into that future because we can't get past our past. Let's have a raw, honest moment. There is nobody sitting in this room, not one person who doesn't have parts of our stories that hurt, that left scars that we wish desperately we could go back in time and erase, right? Like if you're sitting here going, oh, not me, I never struggled to get past my past, then well, let me say on behalf of all Revision Church, we're so glad you're here this morning, Jesus. But like for the rest of us, for all the normal human beings, sometimes our past feels like this giant scary beast that haunts us and defines the way we look at ourselves and defines the future we're headed towards. And if we can't deal with it in the way God invites us to deal with it, then we're always going to settle for lives that are less than the lives God says he made us for. And I know some of you hear me say that and immediately your defenses go up and you're ready to tune me out because you're like, yeah, 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 Mike, but you don't understand what I've done. Yeah, 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 Mike, but you don't get what happened to me. If you knew the truth about my past, you'd understand why there's no getting past it. Your past might be a molehill, man, but mine is a mountain and it's a big, scary one. And if that's you, I want to invite you just for the next few moments to suspend your disbelief. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you you can conquer your past in just a few easy steps. That's baloney, and I don't believe it, but I do believe you can find freedom from it if you learn to see it through God's eyes. And if you do, as you do, you might just discover that God placed an ordinary hero inside of you after all. But moving toward ordinary heroism is this giant hurdle because the past is real and it fills our hearts with fear. We struggle with fear every single day of our lives. It's real and it's overwhelming. And so we've got to understand it, all right? Fear is a future-based emotion that causes us to be upset right now about something that might happen later. It's a belief about a potential coming pain that causes this part of our brains called the amygdala to stress us out. And that's real. That's just science, 
right? But I think for most of us, our fears aren't just pulled out of the ether. They aren't a product of our wild imaginations. They're a product of our circumstances. Life kind of teaches us what to be afraid of, doesn't it? That's why we look at our kids and we're like, don't touch that hot stuff. I'm like, why? Because it will hurt. How do you know? Well, my parents told me not to touch it when I was your age, and I'm dumb, so I did it anyway, and it hurts. So just don't do it. It's not going to go good. And I'm like, okay. Ah, kids, parenting, right? There's some value in some of the painful lessons we've learned from experience, but when it becomes a problem is when our fear begins to rob us of our future. And no one knows that more than me. I've told you guys this uh, a bunch of times, but I am afraid of a whole laundry list of dumb things humans shouldn't be afraid of. I was thinking through it this week, and I remembered another one. When I was 15 years old, this girl named Sarah called me up and asked if I wanted to go to a haunted house with her and some friends. It took me like three nanoseconds to say yes, because she was next level cute. And I'm thinking, all right, this could work out for me long term. And so a week later, her parents pulled up in their van to take us. That's a fun stage of being a teenager when you want to go on dates but you can't drive yet. And so I hopped in the van and like we're riding along to the haunted house and she's like, you're going to protect me if someone like jumps out and tries to get me, right? If we were five, that would have been a legitimate question. At 15, that's flirting. So I'm like, I got in the van, I'm already killing it. Uh, this, <laughs> oh, we got to the haunted house and it was, it was normal, it was fine, whatever. And we're going along and everything was going exactly according to my plans. Every time a light flashed or someone yelled, she'd grab onto my arm. I was just like, oh. Then we went into a room with a strobe light flashing against some like aluminum foil covered walls. And I have no idea what happened. It like broke something in my brain and tripped me out and I couldn't see straight. And I cranked my head on the wall twice while I was trying to get out of this place. And then I was just dizzy, like I had vertigo or something. And I hit my head a couple more times and managed to cut my finger on a nail So in addition to my newly acquired tetanus from the haunted house, Sarah stopped being like, hey, protect me, and started being like, hey, are you okay? And then eventually led me outside to just sit there and wait for everybody else to finish. And all I could keep saying was, I can't believe I cut my hand. So whatever spark was there, I killed it. I didn't just put it out, I doused it with water. (laughs) And long term, here's the deal. I can't remember ever looking back on that night and thinking, oh, I wish it had gone differently for me. It kind of worked out. Have you met my wife? Some idiots just keep on getting lucky, and I'll take it. Now, to be fair, there's probably some times that Jenny has looked at me and been like, oh, if that night had just gone differently for him, I could have avoided all that. But it's too late. We got kids and everything. Anyways, here's the upshot of this thing. Even though I'm pretty pleased with how my life worked out, I've still never been back to a haunted house. I won't go. Don't invite me. I don't like them. It's funny now, but it's a part of my story that actually happened. And here's what I know. Everyone in this room is sitting here with parts of our story that actually happened that aren't that funny. We got moments in our past that still hurt, that still trip us out that we still desperately wish we could escape from, but we don't know how. And when I talk about the past, maybe that's 10 years ago, maybe it's 20 years ago, maybe it's 30 years ago, maybe it's last night or last week or last month, but there's nobody in this room who doesn't have some incident or some season we wish wasn't a part of our story. And it might be something you did that you wish you could undo. It might be something that happened to you. 
but you've just been carrying it around for a really long time. And listen, to get past these old hurts and these old habits and these old losses means not just moving beyond the pain they still cause, but also moving beyond the way they limit how we see ourselves and the future we're headed toward. The truth is, for so many of us, we are held back by the weight of our worst moments. We have this routine where we we wake up every morning and then we drag our past around with us all day. And we go to bed and then we wake up and we drag our past around and then we go to bed and we wake up and we drag our past around and then we go to bed and we wake up and we drag our past around. And if we do not let it die, it will never, ever let us live. So many of us are trapped in a space where we're victimized by our past in a way that causes us to just drift into our futures instead of actively chasing the lives God says he has for us. And we just kind of passively hope that somehow it'll all disappear. Like, man, I hope my resentment goes away. Man, I hope my bitterness just magically disappears from my brain. I hope I wake up tomorrow and all this brokenness just isn't a part of my life anymore. And while we wait, we get tempted to turn to any number of things to help us cope. Withdrawal. You ever notice that one of the greatest temptations anytime something goes wrong in your life is to step away from community? In the exact moment when you need it most, I think one of the greatest tools of the devil in our lives is to tell us to to run away from it. Or we use anger. Some people are angry, and it's not even about what right or what's right in front of them. It's about something in the past, but it just gets constantly poured out on whatever is in front of them. Or we use shopping or substances or images on a screen. We self-medicate the wounds of our past in any way we can possibly think to because we don't know deep down at the core of who we are that we can move past them. And here's what I want every one of us to understand this morning. We may not be able to get a new start, but that's actually not a big deal for God. He's willing to create us a new future. And it's not a simple process by any measure, but if we get hung up on our history, it will rob us of our destiny. So what in the world do we do about that? Like if that's really what God's inviting us into, how do we step toward it? And I think the first step is understanding who God says we are. And so before we dive into the ordinary hero of the day, I want to press pause real quick and look at our God-given identity. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible handy, you can crack it open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's like three quarters of the way through the book, sandwiched between 1 Corinthians and Galatians. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church he had planted in Corinth, and it was a messed up church full of messed up people with messed up pasts. Paul had to write to them a whole lot. And in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, he's talking about the hope that we have if we've put our faith and our future in Jesus Christ. And verses 16 and 17 are absolutely profound. They're game changers for us as we talk about how to move beyond the pain of our stories. Paul writes this, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. And I love this so much because Paul's like, look, we're used to defining ourselves by the terms our world uses to define us. 
It's hard for us to see ourselves in any other way because we live in the middle of a culture that constantly speaks to our identity. And so we get hung up on our worst moments and our greatest failures and the reasons that we should be canceled. And then we, we drive by that place again or we see that person again or we listen to that song again. And as the memories come flooding back into our minds, the guilt comes crashing down on us. And it's impossible almost for us to escape that pattern because we live in the middle of a culture that tells us that is who you are, that is who you are, that is who you are, that is who you are. But Paul's like, what if, what if we didn't see ourselves that way? And it's a weird, crazy question to think to because Paul's really onto something. You know why so many of us feel condemned? It's because we know who we really are. We know what we've done. We know what we've said. We know the kind of thoughts that have run through our heads. And deep down inside of us, every single one of us wonders if people knew who I really am. Like if they knew what I have done, if they knew what I've said, if they knew the kind of thoughts that have lived inside my head, would they still love me? And we doubt it. We doubt it. We're convinced that we are unlovable. And if you struggle with that, you are not alone. I struggle with this every single week. There's not a week that goes by where I am not deeply tempted to look in a mirror and see an irredeemable, unlovable failure staring back at me. But Paul's looking at us right here. He's writing to Corinth and he's writing to you and me and saying, wait, 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 hold up. If Jesus is who Jesus says he is, if Jesus actually accomplished what Jesus said he accomplished, then maybe that's not who we are anymore. We don't look at anyone, not even ourselves, through a worldly perspective anymore. Because if anyone's in Christ, they're what? A new creation. They're new. And this word that we translate anyone in in this passage, in, in the original Greek language, what it literally means is anyone. That's you. That's everybody around you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what's been done to you. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus has the opportunity to be made new, which means their identity is completely transformed. And if we're ever going to get past the past, we got to understand this. We are not what we've done. We are who God says we are. We are not what God's or what's been done to us. We are who God says we are. And because that's a promise, Jesus makes us. We can cling to this idea. We can claim it as true. God sees me differently than I see myself. We talked a little bit about this last week too because it's so core and it's so foundational. I just want all of us to read it out loud together because as we hear ourselves say it, my hope is we'll begin to believe it. And so would you guys just read this out loud with me? God sees me differently than I see myself. Like if that's true, then my identity is no longer grounded in what I've done and it's no longer grounded in what's been done to me. It is grounded in what Jesus did for me. And what that means is that from that day forward, the day I accept Christ, the day Jesus changed me, the day the old was gone and the new was here, from that day forward, my past gets the opportunity to inform me, but it does not have the right to deform me. What that means is that from that day forward, my past has the right to educate me, but it does not have the right to devastate me. My future doesn't have to be an extension of my past. Jesus can create me a better one, and he wants to, and he says that he will. 
I love the line from Oscar Wilde's famous play, A Woman of No Importance. The only difference between saints and sinners is that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Like None of us have made it to this moment without some wrinkles and cracks in our stories, but every one of us has a future, a new and better one waiting for us, and that's a promise that we can claim in Jesus Christ. But there's a catch, and uh, it's, not, it's not actually a really comfortable one. And here it is. Sometimes, in order to claim that future, we actually have to lean into the wounds of the past so they can fully and truly heal. So you can't actually grab hold of the future if you're holding on to the past. And so there are places where all of us have to go back before we can ever go forward. Because in order for God to create something new for us, we have to let him set all that old stuff Right, and this is another truth that I know all too well. When I was in seventh grade, I had to ride home from a track meet with uh, this family of my sister's friend, and I was, I was sitting next to my sister's friend on the way home, and she told her dad, hey, dad, I don't feel very good. And thankfully, he was one of those dads that don't stop on road trips. They just always assume their kids are lying. And uh, my dad was like that, too. I have a huge hang-up with it for my kids because I could tell my dad my bladder was going to explode and he would just keep on missing exits. Like, oh, I didn't see it for the 11th consecutive time, some peripheral vision. (laughs) And then my mom would be like, Doug, I'm a little thirsty for an iced tea. And I swear we'd veer off the highway through a cornfield (laughs) to, like, take the most direct path to get her a beverage. And I just, I'm dealing with the bitterness of my path, or my past, you guys. But anyways... Anyways, this girl, she wasn't lying. She was telling the truth. And so uh, she turned her head to the side and hurled all over me, all over my lap and my shorts and my new running shoes. Here's the thing about me. You guys already know I'm a germaphobe, but also I love shoes. And so I was sitting there conflicted and I'm like, oh, I think I'm washable. These shoes are never going to be the same. And the puke was, it was like pink and curdled. I can still picture it. It looked like shrimps. There was just shrimps all up on me. And... Oh, fast forward two weeks. My parents had to leave church early. They're like, oh, that family's going to give you a ride home. My first thought was, no, they are not. I'll walk. I'm not going back into the Lincoln town car where the shrimps wrecked my shoes. I'm not doing it. That's gross. But as I sat through church, I realized I don't like walking. I've never liked walking. It's going to be fine. And so I made my way back out and I sat down in the seat of the Lincoln town car, exact same seat. And um, long term, I conquered my fears. I now don't have nearly the same hang up about riding in Lincolns as I do about going to haunted houses. <laughs> See, sometimes you got to go back to go forward. And that's easy when you're talking about getting puked on. It's not so easy when you're dealing with some of the pain that all of us in this room are dealing with. It's not actually a simple process to go back into the place of our pain. In fact, it's so difficult that there may be some of you who are sitting here thinking, yeah, 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 maybe that's true for other people. Yeah, maybe God can help some people get past their past. Maybe some people can become ordinary heroes who create a better future for the world as God works through their lives. But that's just never going to be my narrative. It's like too late for me. And this morning I want to share a story with you about a guy who in the most unlikely of circumstances got past his past and was able to create a better future for the people around him. He actually became indispensable to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, which is a pretty cool thing to have on your resume, right? But first he had to go back. 
in order to get past his past, to, to release it and grab hold of the future God had for him. And I think what God does in his life, if God could do it for this guy, he could do it for you. And his name's Onesimus. A quick rundown of his story. He was a slave, but he was a bad one. Like at one point in his life, he got told, Onesimus, you're so useless. Like Paul even writes in his letter to Philemon, who was Onesimus's owner, at one point he was useless to you. And the irony of Onesimus being called useless is that in Greek, his name means useful, okay? So he's holding on to that moment where he got told that, like that trauma, that's alive in his head, right? And then he steals from Philemon and uses the money from the stuff that he stole to finance a trip to Rome, where he's just going to hide out for the rest of his life. And then somehow while he's in Rome, he crashes into Paul. Probably he sought out Paul because he had heard about Paul from the church that met in Philemon's home and his guilt was just overcoming him. He couldn't actually live the life that he'd been dreaming about living because he knew that something was wrong. And Paul introduced him to Jesus, shared the good news of the gospel with him. And Onesimus found faith and hope and new life like he'd never had before. And Paul found someone who was profoundly useful to him while he was under house arrest awaiting trial. So Onesimus is like, hey, everything is going great. And then Paul looked at him, he's like, yeah, man, but it's not, everything's not okay yet you actually have to go back before you can go forward. From this point, you can't claim the future God has for you until you go set some of that stuff right because it's not okay. You gotta go back. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon and he sends Onesimus back, back to the place of his pain, back to the place of his failure. He had to walk into Philemon's house knowing that Philemon was the guy who had used his labor. Philemon was the guy from whom he stole. And Philemon was the guy who told him he was useless. He's walking back into a mess. But check out part of what Paul writes in his letter to Philemon. He says, therefore, Philemon, my brother, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful to both you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary." Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done anything or if he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention... Uh, you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I might have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing you'll do even more than I ask. A couple of things I want us to see here. First, Paul lays it on pretty thick. He's like, hey, Philemon, my man, you know you owe me a little bit of a debt like your whole eternal future and stuff. So I got a request. And I could, I could be more heavy-handed than I'm being, but, you know, just, just make this stuff happen, will you welcome Onesimus back? And will you let me pay his debt? And the crazy thing to me, though, is that Paul sent Onesimus back, knowing full well there could be some serious consequences for his actions. He sent him back with this letter, and they had no idea how Philemon would respond. 
And I think Paul sent him off being like, look, I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what the consequences of this are going to be. But no matter how they respond, even if Philemon says, no, you're my slave. You have to be a slave again. You are not the same person you once were. And because you've been changed, you have to go back. Because you've been changed, it matters that you walk back into this space of pain in your past. And there are three aspects of going back to go forward in this story, and I want us to understand them, because what God does in the story of Onesimus is what I believe he wants to do in your story too. So Onesimus walks back into all three areas of what I like to call the circle of bad. I know that's a clever title, right? You're sitting here thinking, how does Mike come up with this stuff? I stole it. I don't even know who from either. A long time ago when I was in youth ministry, I Googled it to try and figure out if it's like Andy Stanley or Craig Rochelle, but they have better words than, than this one. So, you know, however brilliant you think circle of bad is, I'm not even that smart. But anyway, the circle of bad, the prison of our past consists of three different arenas. There's my bad. That's the stuff that I did that caused hurt and pain to other people. Then there's your bad. That's the stuff somebody else did that hurt me. There's a lot of that stuff in all of our circles. And then there's it's bad. That's the stuff that isn't even anybody's fault specifically. It's just awful stuff that happened as a consequence of living in a shattered world. My bad, your bad, and it's bad. We all have stuff in all three of those circles. And there's a different step forward, a different bit of healing that needs to happen in our lives to move beyond every one of them. So first off, my bad. What do we do with the places where we've left wounds on other people? And this is Onesimus' spot. He stole from Philemon, lied to Philemon, and now he's got to walk back in and basically say, hey, man, I know that I robbed you. I know that I was untruthful. I know that I did a whole lot of stuff that was wrong, and the penalty for some of that stuff could be death. But what I'm going to ask you to do is not kill me. Will you please forgive me? It wasn't okay, and I'm sorry. And I want to take steps to make it right. Can I pay, or can Paul pay my debt in order to set it right. And what this is called is repentance. Repentance is the way past our past in the area of my bad. And it takes a whole lot of humility. It takes the humility not only to admit that you were wrong, but the humility to actively pursue a path that sets things right, to try to pay back the debt. And sometimes we can't even pay it. Onesimus couldn't. He have the money. He could not pay it back. And so Paul offered to pay it for him. And it's a little bit confusing. Why would Paul do that? And the reason is that Paul knew his debts had been canceled too. When Paul met Jesus, he was a murderer. There were brothers and sisters in Christ whose brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers had been killed by Paul. There wasn't a way he could pay them back for that, but they forgave him. They canceled his debt because they understood something that Paul understood, that Philemon and Onesimus understood too. All of us have a debt we cannot repay to God. Like there was a debt we couldn't pay, and Jesus says, all right, put it on my tab, and he gave his life so that, we, so that we could be forgiven and set free. And so repentance is the way past our past in the area of my bad. We got to come to the people we hurt and say, I apologize, and I want to actively make it right. What about your bad? What are the places where, where people have hurt us? Like Onesimus is, is going back to a space where he got treated like he was less than fully human, where he got 
told that his labor was owned and his life was useless. There's some stuff that happened that wasn't all right, and it's Philemon's fault. And so Onesimus has to walk back in there and say, hey, Philemon, no matter what you do from this point forward, I forgive you. Forgiveness is the way past our past in the area of your bad. It's not an easy thing to do, but we don't forgive because someone deserves it. Nobody on this planet deserves to be forgiven, and we don't even forgive because they're sorry. There's a lot of times in our lives where the people we need to forgive aren't sorry, and they aren't going to be sorry. We forgive because that's what Jesus did for us. We forgive because we refuse any longer to swallow the poison pill of bitterness, hoping that it's going to hurt somebody else after Jesus showed us a new and better way by laying down his life so that we could be forgiven and set free. We forgive because we can release our ill will and bitterness. We don't have to be held captive to it any longer, no matter how they respond to us. And so that's exactly what Philemon walks back into, or that's what, exactly what Onesimus walked back into Philemon's house to do, to say, no matter what your response is to me now, I forgive you for the hurt that you caused me. What about it's bad? What about these situations? We can't even blame on anybody. We don't even have anyone to put a finger in their chest and get angry at, but they're just bad. Like slavery is bad. What Onesimus experienced wasn't American-style chattel slavery, but it was bad. And what does he do about that? That's just the lot that befell him in life. And the answer is hope. Hope is the only answer. Hope is the way past our past in the area of it's bad. It's bad, but it's not over. It's not good, but it's not done. It's not the way I want it to be, but the story hasn't been finished yet, which means the bad stuff doesn't get to define me. God sees me differently than I see myself. God sees me differently than the world sees me. I am not who I say I am. I am not who they say I am. I am who he says I am. That's what Onesimus believed, and that's why he was able to do this. He had to step back into the place of his pain and the place of his failure so he could move forward into his future. And you guys, I think some of us have been too scared to go back. We've sat here for a couple months, listened to the stories of a bunch of ordinary heroes who are a lot like us, but believed we could never live a similar story because our past is too messed up for that to be our future. And some of us, I know, we've been clinging to the wounds of the past, and we're scared to let them go because we've been holding them so tightly for so long, we don't even know what life would look like if we released them. But I promise you, if you will release your past and let it die, God will hand you a new future. Like, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of what he did for you, your past is not your prison. It's not who you are. And you can get past your past and what you find in Jesus is bigger than what you fear without him. So my invitation this morning to to all of you, as you move forward, uh, hopefully after the course of this series, with like a bigger, better vision of how we can be a bunch of painfully ordinary, common men and women who live with an uncommon faith that allows God to rewrite the story for all the people we crash into through our lives. My invitation to all of you is to find the liberation God wants for you from the hurt, worry, wounds, scars, and fear you've been dragging around with you and allowing to hold you back. Believe this, write it down, say it as often as you need to. God sees me differently than I see myself. God sees me differently than I see myself. I am not who the world says I am. I am not who I say I am. I am who he says that I am. 
You cannot change your past, but Jesus can change your future. If he did it for Onesimus, he can do it for you. You know what happened to Onesimus? He went from being a slave to being a brother to being a bishop. That's what the early church called the leader in any given city. He actually became a catalyst for the gospel movement of the church in the first century, and countless lives were saved because of him. The world looked at Onesimus and they saw a loser. God looked at Onesimus and saw a leader and rescued him from a past that could have been his prison to a future where eternity was rewritten for a whole bunch of people with broken pasts just like his because of his ministry. That's world history. That's the story of Onesimus. So please, Don't walk out of here believing for one second that God can't do the same thing for you. If we will open our hands to repentance, to forgiveness, and to hope, God will fill them with the future and the meaning and the love and the purpose he has for us. He'll set us free from this prison of our past that we've chosen, believing it's a stronghold against against our, our our past, when really it's a a prison that keeps us from getting our future. He'll set us free from that. He'll give us the hope we were born for. He'll remind us that we are who he says we are, and he will work through us to create a better future for the world. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for not abandoning us to our past. Thank you for not looking down at us in the middle of our rejection of you and just calling us hopeless, calling us useless, deciding that we are all the, all the things that we believe that we are. Thank you that we don't have to look in the mirror any longer and be defined by what we've done or what's been done to us, but we can be defined by what you did for us. I pray that we'd live into that. I pray that you give us the courage to just move toward the future. And I pray that in the spaces where we gotta go back to go forward, we would open our hearts and our hands to repentance and to forgiveness and to hope and that you'd fill us up with the vision you have for who you made us to be and the difference you created us to make. Lord, thank you for inviting us to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for grace. Thank you for hope. I pray for all of us who walked in here today as ordinary men and ordinary women that we'd be able to live out the rest of our lives as ordinary heroes. You'd work through us to do the things you want done so we can write a better story for the people around us. And we thank you for inviting us into that. In Jesus' name, amen.